so glad that each of us have been blessed and are able to come together this morning. It's a delightful privilege and a remarkable honor that you and I have to enter the great presence of the God of heaven in the attitude of worship in spirit and in truth, and to do that in a way we can feel sure that He will be pleased with our worship. Today, as we have prayed and as we have engaged in these other activities of worship, the excitement that builds within us brings us to a consideration of His Word for the next few moments. You and I began a series of lessons a few weeks ago now, looking at some of those, shall we say, offices, if you please, within the church. We devoted three lessons to the eldership and really studied their qualifications and the works that they do. We then looked at deacons and gained a richer appreciation of the role occupied by that office recognized in the New Testament by the deacon. It is to be noted that last Lord's Day morning we took a bit of a break to consider a lesson dealing with the resurrection of our Master. And today we come to the preacher. We will in fact ask about the labor, the effort of the preacher this morning and strive to look at him from the perspective of what the New Testament would have us to understand. Preachers. As you look at this opening slide... I would encourage you to notice it does seem fitting to consider what the New Testament has to say about the preacher. But I would encourage you to note at the very bottom of that slide, we do continue to live in a world so often motivated and in fact influenced by the teaching of denominational philosophies. And sometimes that puts the preacher in a position that is not substantiated by the Bible. In fact, you'll notice those terms like clergy and laity... God doesn't make any such distinction. You remember in the Middle Ages and even sometime thereafter that that person who was the preacher was elevated and lifted to a point where he had special access to blessings and other things that nobody else had. The New Testament doesn't teach that. The preacher, again, is just a man privileged by God to preach His Word. And today, as we look at some of what the New Testament says about him, and the work that he does, and the role that he occupies. I hope you and I will appreciate that it's not the man itself that's so great, it's the message he preaches. What don't we think about then the preacher from that perspective this morning? Building it as we start in the following way. On this next slide, I would ask that you at least reflect with me for a moment or two on the significance the New Testament attaches to the work of preaching. Again, may I say, the significance of the work that's attached to preaching. As you and I develop it like this, you'll notice that 87 times in the Word of God, we find that word preach employed. And as it's employed, there are times we find significance attached to the nature of the greatness that comes about from it. The responses of those who, in fact, hear the message preached. That importance and that significance leads you to the next one. Think about what the word literally means. The word preach, quite frankly, it simply means this, to herald, to publish, to proclaim openly. More than once in the Bible, the word proclamation is used in a context in which preaching is, is mentioned or suggested. As for example, in 2 Chronicles 36, closing paragraph of that chapter, we find there that a proclamation was sent forth as it related to the message that God sent. The preacher then, that which is so greatly significant is the message that he carries and that which, of course, he, dis he distributes. 
surely as we reflect on that significance, notice what comes next, or at least the idea that I would ask you to consider. The, the New Testament. As we find a listing found in Ephesians chapter 4, we notice a reference. Mention is made of apostles, and mention is made of teachers, and mention is made of other individuals who labored in various ways in the New Testament church. But there is mention in that listing of an evangelist. The work of an evangelist. May I ask you to think about the wording in texts like Ephesians 4.11 and notice some other contexts in which something like it appears. In Acts 21, Philip the evangelist is mentioned. Here was a man who was known and recognized as an evangelist. Surely we can see in that that this man, Philip, he may well have had carpentry skills. He may well have had other kinds of mechanical capabilities, but that which at the moment was to be noted, he was an evangelist. He took upon himself that role and that effort and that work attached to evangelism. That public proclamation of the Word. I would ask you to notice those very penetrating words that Paul shared with Timothy. The last words of which we have any record that Paul ever wrote. And yet among that very last chapter he said, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now Timothy was a younger man than he was and who was basically just beginning his efforts as a preacher. And yet he was admonished, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, of course, had a great charge resting on his shoulders as he carried out that work of an evangelist. And those books of First and Second Timothy speak about the details of what Timothy was to preach and how he was to do it. No wonder in light of all of that. Look at how God utilizes the preacher. That man that's a proclaimer of the faithfulness of the gospel truth. Look at how God employs and uses that capability of preaching. I've called your attention two passages. One that refers to an incident, a set of incidents really, far back in the Old Testament. Noah. Peter by inspiration was able to say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In his day and time as Noah constructed that ark, he proclaimed the fullness of the Word of God relative to the nature of their need for repentance their need for change and their need to alter the way they were living. Sadly, there were no responses. That does remind us, at least in passing today, the truth may not always have the number of responses that you and I might wish. There are times we reach the close of a gospel meeting and we're saddened by the fact that there were no public responses. Of course, you and I can hope that there were private responses and individuals were prompted to greater individual service to the Lord, but still those that needed public response didn't come forward. May you and I recognize that as the truth is set forth, just as it was in Noah's day and just as it was in Jeremiah's day, there may not be as many responses publicly as one might hope, but that cannot deter the proclamation of the message. Look at that text in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. We have there such an amazing passage. It speaks about the role occupied by that message the preacher has to share. It says this, Through the foolishness of preaching, God chose to save those that believe. 
Now you'll notice the emphasis in the original Greek really was upon the message preached. It's not that the power is in the man. The power is in the message. Through the message preached, God will save those that believe. The preacher then carries the message of salvation if he's preaching the truth. If he's preaching that which is the Word of God, he carries that which can save the souls of men and women. That's an amazing commission, isn't it? You'll notice beyond that, I would ask you to consider this. The Bible is filled with examples of those who were preachers. We've already noted Noah. We could add John the Baptist to that list. We could add Jesus to that list, borrowing the wording of Matthew chapters 3 and 4. We can add Paul and Peter and so many others. I would ask you to notice then the statement, the respect that should attach to that message that a preacher like that carries. As we close that slide, only two final things. I find it very interesting in Acts chapter 8 that there Philip is called an evangelist. He is said to have gone down and preached to those in Samaria. Philip is said to be a preacher. And yet, by the same token, Philip had the privilege and the blessing of working miracles. But yet, what was highlighted and what was so interestingly signified was the fact he preached. Now, there was a scene in which there was an age of miracles. Philip lived in a day and time when individuals could still perform miracles and yet the preaching was highlighted and emphasized because it says in verse number 12 that when they heard Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. They weren't prompted so much by the miracles as they were by the preaching. Today, you and I live many centuries this side of the capability of miracles. No man today can work miracles. That has long since left human capability but yet the power of preaching still remains. The necessity of preaching still remains. The urgency of preaching still remains. And that urgency will be highlighted as we roll forward in our lesson this morning. As you'll notice finally, the preacher with that message of salvation is described in such beautiful terms like these. In the 10th chapter of the Roman letter, Paul, beginning in verse 13, began that discussion like this, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul, how do I call on the name of the Lord? Verse 14, And how shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That takes us through the close of verse 14, highlighting the fact that calling on the name of God demands belief, which in turn demands hearing, and hearing will involve a proclamation, a preacher. It is in that next verse that the beauty of the work of preaching is highlighted. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings. There is no better message than the, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who equip themselves to preach it and those who prepare themselves to share it, they greatly benefit all of us who hear them, don't they? Because it's God's Word that they share and it's God's Word that they bring. Having noted then the importance of preaching, it's a part of a worship service like you and I are enjoying at the moment as we think about praising and serving God as He's commanded. I would turn the page 
to a set of responsibilities and warnings that touch the work of the preacher. As we think about these, we certainly must begin here. We've noted the importance of preaching, and more than once we've highlighted in those verses the significance of the message. It's time to let Paul do that explicitly. It was the lesson text read just a moment ago this morning. In the closing chapter of the book of 2 Timothy, that chapter began like this, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. That reading takes us through verse 5 of 2 Timothy 4. And in the midst of those proclamations and charges to Timothy, we find the second verse reading like this, Preach the Word. I would invite you and me to think a bit about that for the next few moments. In fact, we will use the next several minutes to develop that little set of verses we just noted in reading. The word preach. I've in fact tried to list in parentheses the closest spelling I can get to in English to what those original words were in Greek. Keruso, it means to proclaim, to herald, to make known, and thus it corresponds identically to what you and I appreciate as preaching. Timothy was told to proclaim publicly, to herald forth the glad message of good news. I would ask you to note beside that, the verb tense that Paul employed, this was a continuous action. Timothy wasn't supposed to preach just one time. He had an ongoing commission to share forth by virtue of the belief and confidence he had in the Lord and the talent that God had given him to use that to preach. The sweetness and specialness of it leads us to know what was he to preach. Paul's very specific. Preach the word, Timothy. That word is logos in Greek. You and I might immediately think back to the words of our Master Himself in John chapter 1 when we find Him recognized as the Logos. Here, that word clearly refers to the Word of God, doesn't it? Timothy was given authorization and in fact commissioned to preach that which was the Word of God. And that was the end of the list. There is no second choice. If you don't preach that, there's no preaching at all. Preach the Word, he said. Please note this. We find so many reminders throughout the Word of God telling us of the continuance of that which was the message Timothy was to preach. In Acts chapter 17, verse number 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received what? The Word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Now that had reference, of course, to those on that second missionary journey those in Berea were hungering for the Word, and when they heard it, they checked what the preacher said relative to what the Scriptures had taught. And they were highly commended for that, weren't they? You'll notice beyond that in 1 Peter 1.25, the Word of the Lord endureth forever. It doesn't matter how many generations have passed before this earth comes to its end. It doesn't matter how many. It could be 100,000 years or more from now. 
And you and I know this Word will be as vital, as essential, as needed then that it is now and that it was in the first century. The Word of God is what Timothy was to preach. One final verse is the middle one. When Paul made reference to what he himself preached when he came to Philippi, isn't it interesting? He made reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ as his singular and sole message. May that be our mark today. That pulpits will flame with the Word of God. We ought not be interested then in that appreciation attached to philosophy, sophistries, opinion, that which is cultural norms. Those things make no difference. They won't save the souls of men. It doesn't matter how good they may sound. Preach the Word, Paul told Timothy. That preaching of the Word brings us to the next statements that Paul made. I would invite you to notice, he said, be instant. Instant. Now that probably is a usage of a word in the days of the King James that today is not readily recognized in the same way. We use the word instant differently than it's meant there. Look at what that means. It literally means to stand ready, to be always alert to. Timothy, preach the Word, be always alert to what it says. Be always confident in and prepared to share it in its fullness and truth because you'll notice this, in season and out of season. Be instant in season, out of season. Let's highlight that, please. You'll note the meaning literally is when it's favorable and when it's not. Preacher doesn't change his message just because culture doesn't like it. He doesn't alter the thrust and power of that which is needful to the congregation just because some may not prefer it. He has a higher charge than that. God has told him to preach, and it doesn't matter if men say don't preach it. He realizes he must answer on the day of judgment to the one who gave him the commission just as Paul gave to Timothy. Preach the word, God said. The world needs it. In fact, the world desperately needs it, even though it may think it doesn't. This instant in season and out of season brings us to what else Paul affirmed. He said, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What about that word reprove? It carries a rather significant meaning, doesn't it? To reprehend severely, or to put it differently, to convict, to point out the error of. When a man climbs into the pulpit, carrying, of course, the gospel message with him, with intent to share it, he does so with a depreciation of helping individuals in their understanding of what is needed to go to heaven. He shouldn't do it out of some personal vengeance, some personal motivation whereby he wishes to get back at someone who may have said or done something to him. That's not the reason. He does so out of a concern for being true to the Word of God. Reprehend severely when that's needed. How often can you remember God's preachers throughout the Word doing that? Did Paul ever reprehend anybody for errors in their life? Did Jesus ever reprehend anybody for mistakes or errors that they were making? To ask that question is to answer it, isn't it? We understand God's Word will do that to any and all of us. And may we be quick to say the preacher is not exempt either. He is not perfect. 
He, like everyone else, needs to recognize the power and the demands of the Word and to bring his life into compliance with it. And as he studies and as he appreciates that same message that he preaches to others, is of course directed to him too. No wonder as you come to the bottom. I've asked you to remember two very quick examples. Matthew 23, beginning in verse number 1, Jesus pronounced to the Pharisees, How many woes? Seven. One after the other, reminding them of the mistakes that they had made and the need for their changes. What about that text in 1 Corinthians 3? You'll notice near the close of that chapter again, Paul in great strength and directness reminded those in Corinth of mistakes that were not to be made. They were doing things in Corinth that needed changing fast. Surely in light of all that, you notice there's two more verbs to come. Reprove. What about rebuke? To rebuke means to warn. It means in strength to admonish. There are times the preacher will need to do that using, of course, the Word of God. He warns. Let us be quick to say that all of us are on the battle lines. And the devil is so interested in bringing about temptations that ultimately will cause you and me to fall. And there are times that very strong and direct warnings are appropriate and needful. To all of you who are parents, think how sometimes it is so much more effective to be very direct with your youngster. Now there are times when discipline may cause, may needfully be brought about with less direct means because their temperament would be more effective otherwise. But sometimes for a rebellious teenager, there's nothing more effective than stern and strong rebuke so that they never forget the means whereby they have been led into mistake and they'll never forget that, that which they've done. Look at the verses I've asked you to consider. In verse 17 of Romans 16, we have there a particular passage that reminds all of us, but think of how it would relate to the work of the preacher. He's there told to mark them which cause offenses and divisions contrary to the Word. Notice again the significance of the Word. You and I should love that Word and lift it high and certainly be very concerned about those who do not respect it. One final verb, what about exhort? The word exhort means, as you can well tell, to urge, to implore, to encourage. The Word of God does that so well. And if the preacher is dutiful to his task, he too will exhort and urge in the way that will help individuals see the error of their way and their need to come to the Master. As you know, we offer invitations at the close of our lessons and sermons and hopefully all of the lesson sets before all of us a way to remind us of God's demands and that we will respond because if our life isn't in compliance with it, hopefully it will not be a hard thing to come forward. But the preacher, of course, should set forth the Word of God and do so in a way to exhort or encourage obedience. It might well be in fairness to all of that. I've called to your attention the, the verbs that Paul used as he gave these instructions to Timothy. Continuous action, individual thrust. Timothy was to preach like this. And what a great blessing he would have been, no doubt, to the church in Ephesus where he was preaching. One set of final things on that slide. 
Paul went on to say, with all long-suffering and doctrine. Paul was, or Timothy was to employ patience. He was to employ an understanding relative to the lives and circumstances of others, but that was not to change the message. That message was fixed from heaven, wasn't it? It is with that as we close that slide. What a great responsibility Timothy then was given. As we come to the last set of brief ideas in our lesson this morning, I would ask you to notice, point number one in light of this was preach the Word. That's the role and the commission given to the preacher. How is he to preach it? Point number two, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And keep in mind, that's the same city where Timothy was stationed somewhat later. But here Paul said that the preacher is to speak the truth in love. We hinted at this earlier, didn't we? There might be many ulterior motivations that might fill the heart of a man that was given to preaching. Maybe he's got a vendetta out against somebody. Maybe he preaches something just to get back at somebody. Maybe he says something just so that he can make sure everyone's aware of the position he occupies. Those motivations are not good ones. He is to speak the truth. How? In love. Out of concern for love for God, love for the Word, love for the souls of individuals, he has a love for that which will lead to their salvation. He isn't motivated by these other things, or shouldn't be at least. Look at some of these verses if you would. Paul himself stated marching orders for every preacher in Acts the 20th chapter, didn't he? When there, as he described that, he specifically said, I've kept back nothing that was profitable for you. In fact, he went on in verse 27 of that same chapter to speak of the fact that I have preached the whole counsel of God. We need to be appreciative in the blessing that comes from all that God's Word has to say. There ought not be some subjects that are cut out of the preacher's repertoire. He needs to preach all of it because all of us need it. We need to be reminded of it. Our lives may need to be changed in light of it. Wouldn't it be sad to arrive at the day of judgment and God ask a preacher, why didn't you preach on that? It's in the Word. Why'd you cut that out of your repertoire? So we need lessons that remind us of the error of social drinking and the errors attached to various and sundry other things the devil parades before us. The preacher, if he's dutiful, will preach all of God's counsel, just like the wise preachers of the biblical era did. One last verse among those to which I would point your attention. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16, Paul made a description again about himself as a preacher. And he said it in language like this. I say the following statements because we, again, from the denominational appreciation, see individuals who as preachers often behave themselves in a way that they draw the glory to themselves. Maybe you've seen them. They dress up in these fanciful regalia. They stand before others as if they are the mediator between God and men. Shame on them. There is no mediator between God and men except Christ Jesus our Lord, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. These men who direct the glory to themselves make the same kind of mistake Moses made when he struck that rock in Numbers chapter 20. Paul for all said it like this, Woe isn't to me if I preach not the gospel. 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, And he prefaced that by saying, Not of glory for me. 
for I preach it of necessity. Paul wasn't in the business of lifting his name up or making a name for himself. And any man that does that today is not preaching out of the true motive that he should be using. Loving for the Word. What about number three? One of the responsibilities that certainly must attach to that preacher then is that of study. A careful and intense consideration of the Word of God. For he's going to give an answer the day of judgment if he climbs into that pulpit and preaches what is not the truth. He must study. And so, I suppose all of us should have mighty little respect for those men that will climb into a pulpit and say, I didn't know what to preach today and God just now gave me the message. That's nonsense. It requires preparation and exquisite consideration of the Word so that all of the Word of God can be shared forth. In Psalm 119, verse 160, we read there of the importance, the sum of thy word is truth, S-U-M, all of it. And as lessons are prepared, it's important to appreciate the necessity of seeing all that God has to say on a particular subject. We mustn't pick and choose. We mustn't think that we have all of God's word unless we consider all He has to say about it. Study this is needful. It is with that in mind, I would ask you to note what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 to 16. It was in those passages Paul said, Timothy, give yourself to doctrine, to exhortation, and to reading. Now, I thought Timothy lived in the day when there were miraculous matters, and so he did. But that didn't replace the opportunity to study and to be thoroughly acquainted with the text at hand. To study. It is, of course, an effort and a work touching that matter. Three verses later, in verse 16, Paul told him, Timothy, you not only will save yourself, but you'll save those that hear you when you do this. How thankful then we can be for these instructions that God has given to preachers. Whether it be the considerations of preaching the Word, whether it be the matters of the way it's to be done in love, or even the circumstances surrounding the needfulness of study. We'll close our lesson with three very quick observations. I'm sure many of these are obvious. There's some other things that might be noted. We live in an age and in a time when sometimes money can speak loudly. A preacher might, in fact, just not preach on certain subjects when a little money has slipped into his pocket. Or in fact, because of the ability of a congregation to pay him a fair amount, they may sway his messages in a certain way. That's not good. You and I realize that he shouldn't be motivated by filthy lucre. Neither elders nor deacons were in that position either. They were told not to be greedy for filthy lucre, and in many ways that must be true of the preacher too. It's a fine thing for him to be able to appreciate the fruits of his labor. We are told more than once in the Bible, don't muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. And when Paul used that in 1 Corinthians 9, he was talking about paying the preacher. It's entirely right to pay him, but if he's motivated by money, and if that's the only reason he does it, it's likely his messages are not going to be what they ought to be. And it's likely he is not going to have in him the nature of bringing about the fullness of the blessing of what God's Word would have for that congregation, not motivated by the money of it. 
What about number five? It is true, and I believe we all understand it well. I'm familiar with it from yet another perspective. I, of course, have the opportunity to teach physics from time to time at, at Lipscomb and at other places. One of the things students obviously expect is I should be able to work the problems or at least the professor in the class. It doesn't seem reasonable to give a test and the teacher can't work the problems. So too, the man who preaches, his life needs to be a reflection of the dutifulness and the holiness attached to the word that he preaches. The congregation likely will have little interest in what he has to say if he doesn't practice what he preaches. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? And I think we all understand that. No wonder Paul told that to Timothy. Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, Be thou an example of the believers. Timothy, as the preacher, yea, all of us as Christians should strive to be examples of holiness and godliness. But isn't it interesting, Timothy, you be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity... All of those things would be characteristic of the kind of individual that Timothy was. An example of the believers. I hope today as we think about the sixth and final one, we notice that God has placed some restrictions, of course, on those that are able to occupy the pulpit with His blessing. That is a work in mixed assembly He's given to the men. He did expressly say in 1 Timothy 2.11, that again he suffered not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. And so in terms of public proclamation and mixed assemblies, that's given to the men. When we think about the work of the preacher, we close our lesson with this final observation. I think we can readily summarize the things we've highlighted with these brief statements. Among the five acts of worship, preaching is one of them. The sharing forth of the Word is one of them. And God has equipped men to be able to do this. The work of preaching. It's an important work. It's a needful work. It reminds all of us of the greatness of the Word of God and helps us remain attuned to it and humble with respect to it. We then looked at six quick things about the work of preachers. They preach the Word. They preach it in love. They aren't motivated by money. They'll have to study to do it rightly. And as such, we appreciate so well the nature of how we're each blessed when the Word of God is shared with us. It is a beautiful task to preach the Word of God. I hope today as we close this lesson and think about the attributes of preaching, that we'll recognize that all throughout the Word of God, men with that capacity have been described for us. And we've used today Paul's words to Timothy especially. This very day... I hope that if you find yourself separated from the nature of God's gospel, that you aren't living in harmony with it, realize that that gospel will be the very thing that you will be judged by in the day of judgment. Why not make it right today? This opportunity is yours as we stand in just a moment and sing this hymn. It is a hymn of encouragement, a hymn of invitation. If you've never obeyed the gospel... If you know that there's wrong in your life, you understand the nature of what sin is, and you know that you're lost, why do you remain where you're standing? In just a moment, why not rush down this aisle and let's take care of that and make things right between you and your God? If you have become a Christian, 
At some former time, you knew the blessing that went with that life, but you have strayed from it. You have lost excitement, perhaps, or interest in it, whatever that situation may be. You know you're still lost at this moment. Why not come back to the God that loves you? That'll require repentance on your part. It'll require making changes. And it'll require, of course, approaching Him through the avenue of His Word. Today, if we could be of help to you, we'd be honored to, to do that. If in any way we could be of assistance, why don't you come now while together we stand and while we sing?